Hilton Life Church podcast. My name is Kayla Crum, and I'm the worship pastor here at HLC. If God is doing something amazing in your life, we want to hear about it. Please email your story to us at info at hamiltonlifechurch.com. It is through the faithful giving of people like you that we are able to expand God's kingdom here in Chattanooga and around the world through the ministries we support. If you would like to give and be a part of Hamilton Life Church, please visit our website at hamiltonlifechurch.com or join us this Sunday. Thanks again for joining us today. We pray that God moves in your life through this message. Let's stand and take out our Bibles. Open up to 2 Timothy chapter 1 for me. 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is one of my favorite passages um, of Scripture because it's just... Uh, it's just very challenging. If you've been a part of our Wednesday nights for any long period of time, I usually will mention this at various points because it is such an encouragement and it is such a challenge in things. I don't know if I've spoken on this on a Sunday uh, ever from 2 Timothy, but, but if you were listening on Wednesday and you're like, I think I've heard of the name Onesiphorus before, you probably have. And let it be uh, something that ministers to you this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 15, just a few verses here. Paul's writing, he says, As you know, everyone from the province of Asia has deserted me, even Phagilus and Hermogenes. But may the Lord show special kindness to Onesiphorus and all his family, because he often visited and encouraged me. He was never ashamed of me because I was in chains. And when he came to Rome, he searched everywhere until he found me. May the Lord show him special kindness on the day of Christ's return. And you know very well how helpful he was in Ephesus. Thank you, you can have a seat for me. This is week three now of our Entrusted to Lead series. Uh, The whole point of this series, it's coming off of the heels of our glorious series, where when we talked about that, that when we recognize the glory of God and then our undoneness in it, we need to submit to him. We need to walk in holiness before him. And then we close that series out by talking about the the blessing that it is to walk uh, under the shadow of his wings, how he goes before us and he fights our battles. And so... The idea of the entrusted to lead is like, okay, God, I want to I trust and follow you in all things, but what does that look like practically in our everyday life? And we are not left on an island when it comes to those things. Paul writes to Timothy, who was a young pastor in Ephesus, and back in 1 Timothy 4.12, you can keep that on the screen for me. He writes to him the main theme verse of our entire series says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example or be a model or be a pattern. For the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Remember, we talked, okay, so how do I, living this out now, Paul tells us, hey, you're meant to be an example. We talked week one about being a thermostat or being a thermometer. That the situation that you find yourself in, you know, in your family and in your home, and sometimes maybe just with your own physical makeup, there's, there's times I wonder to myself of, God, why did you put me together the way I am? Why do I have this personality? Why do I, why do I have these things or that things? And, God reminds me, no, 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 you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're put together the way you are on purpose because there is a way, there's, the world needs you just the way you are to be a light for the Lord. You're meant to be an example. Week one, we talked about David's mighty men, what it means to be an example. David's mighty men, when they heard David wanted some water, they broke through the lines, went to Bethlehem, got that water, brought it back to him. And just at the whisper of their master's command, they went and did those things. And David ended up taking that water and pouring it out before the Lord because it was representative of something greater, that God, this is what we want our heart to be before you. God, that when you say to do something, we want to embody that. We want to walk that out. Following that heart, that is what it means to be an example. 
That is what it means to set a precedent, to be a model or a pattern. And then there's practical areas of our life that we're supposed to walk this out. Last week, we looked at the first two. We're supposed to set an example. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. That's that intimidation of sometimes we feel like I'm I'm ill-equipped. Don't worry about that. But you set an example in speech and in conduct. So what we looked at last week, the power of our words. The King James Version, you can put that on the screen for me. We looked at both of these together because they do tie together. The King James Version says that we should set the example in word and in conversation. Instead of in speech and in conduct, it says word and conversation. Paul is writing to Timothy, and specifically Timothy as a pastor, what he's telling him is, hey, Timothy, make sure the things that you are saying from the pulpit are correct, but then in your everyday life, in your conversation, in your social interactions with others, make sure you are also setting the example. The encouragement for you and me is don't just talk the talk, but make sure you're also walking the walk. Don't be the plumber whose toilet leaks. Don't be the mechanic whose car doesn't work. That's what we looked at last week. And this week we look at the third category, the third area, which is set the example in our speech, set the example in our conduct, and set the example in our love, our love for one another. I also like the way King James keeps this one here. Last week we looked at two different topics tied together as one. This week we are taking one topic and we're dividing it up into two. This idea of love here, the King James doesn't use the word love. It says we set the example in our word, in our conversation, and in our charity, and in our spirit, and then in our faith, and in our purity. I like the way the King James specifically highlights it, because it takes the word love, and it divides it into two things, because there's two different aspects to the word love here. In the original Greek, the word love, no matter what, is the word agape. But I like how the King James just specifically highlights what it means to have agape love. Agape love is the unconditional love of God. In the Bible, there's three main types of love that are spoken about. There's an eros love, which is a sexual love. There's a phileo love, which is like a brotherly love. Like, I got brotherly love for JD. I got brotherly love for Isaac. I got brotherly love for you guys. And then there's a godly love. There's an unconditional love, the love that God has for us. Unconditional, uh, I laid my life down for you. Agape love. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, you should be setting the example for those around in the way you are unconditionally loving people. But I like how the King James takes that word and divides it into two again because it talks about two different ways that we show unconditional love in our charity with other people. That is our physical action. How do you physically set the example in love with other people? And then in our spirit, the heart that we have towards other people in our love. This week we're gonna look at charity. Next week we're gonna look at spirit. So just spoiler alert, next week's talking about spirit. But I want to talk about how do we set the example in our love uh, by the way we practically walk this out. How do we actually live out loving other people? And this is where I want to take this thought and apply it back into what we were reading in 2 Timothy here. Go back into verse 15 for me. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Paul's writing again. He says, as you know, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, and uh, even Phagilus and Hermogenes. Everybody say Phagilus. Everybody say Hermogenes. Those are just fun words to say. Um, Paul's right here. Paul's writing this letter, and he has a significant problem facing him. Where is everybody? What does it say happened to everybody? You can actually answer this. They've deserted him. What does it mean to desert somebody? They've left him out to dry. Paul is in Rome when this is happening here. He has been arrested. He is in prison at the hands of Emperor Nero. 
We'll go into more detail about him in a moment here. But this is literally the end of Paul's life. 2 Timothy is written sometime in the fall season. He's writing it to Timothy. We know this, the book concludes with him telling Timothy that, hey, when you come to visit me, bring me my jacket for the wintertime because he gets cold in prison. And then what we know is coming out of winter, Paul is ultimately martyred at the hands of Emperor Nero. He's actually beheaded at this time. This is why there is a stark difference in the way 2 Timothy is written versus the other prison epistles that Paul writes. Paul knows this is, this is going to be the end here. That's why he concludes this book. It's the last book, by the way. It's the last epistle, the last letter that he ever writes. But this is why he specifically ends it later on by saying, I've fought the good fight, I've run the race, and I have remained faithful. He knew it's coming to an end. Something's different about this. Being in the hands of Emperor Nero, I know my time is come to an end, and I'm ultimately going to be killed. And so he's writing these final words to Timothy as like the last words of his life that are literally recorded in this part right here as these final encouragement of, hey, Timothy, when I leave, here's the things. Keep on walking this out. Remain faithful. Fan into flame your gifting. All those different things that we've talked about in times past. But there's a finality to what he is saying right here. And then he gives us a stark understanding of his specific uh, life of what he's going through. It says, everybody in the province of Asia, that's Asia Minor, which is like modern-day Turkey, everybody's de deserted me. They've all left me. Paul has spent the vast majority of his life, four missionary journeys, the last missionary journey culminating in being in prison in Rome, in Asia Minor, planting churches. All those churches you read about, Galatia, all those, they're in Asia Minor. All those people that I was depending on, they aren't there with me anymore. To highlight how bad this has gotten even, does anybody know off the top of their head what the next book in the Bible is after this? 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy? Nobody's bold enough to actually say it. So all you hear is, <laughs> I know y'all are just faking it. What's it, Kathleen? Thank you, Kathleen. The next book in the Bible is Titus, his last pastoral epistle letter. He has prison epistles, and he writes these other ones to pastors. He writes to Timothy. He writes to a young pastor named Titus. It has gotten so bad that a man who has a book of the Bible named after him, look what happens with him, if you can put it on the screen for me. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is how bad it's gotten. As he's concluding 2 Timothy. He says, Demas has deserted me because he loves the thing of this life, things of this life, and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. And Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Like a man that has a book of the Bible named for him, even in the heat of the persecution that's going on here, has abandoned Paul at this point. Like understand a little bit of historical context specifically to what's happening. The Roman Empire, the emperor at this time is a man named Nero. Nero is one of the worst Roman empires just categorically in, in, in all of it. Specifically though, he also was the one that led the first great persecution of Christians during this time. It all sort of stems from this weird circumstance. So just a little, you might be wondering like, wow, this took a weird turn here for a second. Just bear with me. Rome at this point in history, as Paul is writing this, has just experienced a, a great fire. There are 14 districts in Rome. Rome had about a million uh, people living in it this time. Remember, this is like 60 AD. So a million people living together is a huge city at that point. It's a big city nowadays. But it's about a million people in Rome, broken up into 14 districts. A fire breaks out. It takes six days to put out this fire. This is all shown through the course of history. Out of the 14 districts, 10 of them are severely damaged. Three of the districts are completely destroyed. So it's a rough deal. But literally, almost the entire city is displaced. Everybody is angry at this time, and people already don't like Nero because just as you study history, Nero's a little crazy. And so they start to blame Nero. Um, 
You know that old expression that a lie makes it halfway around the world before truth has a chance to put its boots on? Has anybody ever heard that saying before? How many people are from Texas? If you're from Texas, it's a Texas saying. So Carrie's like, yeah, I've heard it. Absolutely. You also live with me, so you've heard it from me. But that's what happens here with Nero. What happens is as this fire has come down, everybody is looking for somebody to pin this on, and people start blaming it on Nero, and there is a rumor that has been disproven through the course of history. But at this point, ancient historians believed it was all Nero's fault, and there was this rumor that spread because Nero did want to build a new palace for himself, and Rome was landlocked. And so the rumor was that he sent his bodyguard into these lower-income districts, set fires to things to burn them down. That way he could... Uh, have room to build his new palace. There's a famous story of Nero as Rome burned, standing on top of his palace, his old palace, playing his violin as Rome burned. Maybe you've ever seen that picture or heard that things before. That's what ends up happening. Everybody believes Nero is at fault for all this. And so they're coming for him hot and heavy. They want his, they, they're, they're angry with him. Nero, to deflect that blame, blames it on the Christians. Christianity at this point is only a number of years old. It's spreading rapidly, and it is diametrically opposed to the Roman religious system of all the gods and all those kinds of things. And so people already didn't know much about Christianity, and so it was just an easy target. And so Nero blames all the Christians, everybody. They make laws to imprison Christians, all those things, and everybody starts to persecute them. It gets so bad, it is Nero that is the one that imprisons Peter and ultimately crucifies Peter upside down. Like Peter, Jesus is... I'm going to build a church on you, Peter, that Peter. Paul is then imprisoned. There's other just tremendous stories about the Christian martyrs that were going on. I'll read just a quick excerpt that I had found. Examples of the executions of Christians. It says, in their very deaths, Christians, they were made the subjects of sport. They were covered with hides of wild beasts, and when they were covered by the hides of wild beasts, they were attacked uh, to death, they were worried to death by dogs. Um, they were nailed to crosses. They were set fire. Uh, and then what would also happen is as the day would wane, as it would start to get dark, uh, they would also be set to fire to serve as candles for the evening light. There is a famous story of Nero wanting to go visit and travel through his garden in, in the middle of the night, but because it was dark, he couldn't go see it. And so the story went that he and his, and, his, and his lover got into the back of their chariot, and they got Christians from the prisons, and they dunked them in oil, and they hung them up on posts all around the garden and set them on fire so that Nero could ride around the garden with his lover. And that's what's going on with Christianity at this time. And Paul is in prison, and he knows this is going to be my time. And in the midst of all this, it's gotten so bad that even Titus has left him. Uh, Demas has left him. Crescens has left him and all those things. And then the Bible, I, I think it's always really funny how like Paul goes out of his way just to sideswipe these two guys named Hermogenes and Phagilus. Well, Jewish tradition says that Hermogenes, or Catholic tradition says that Hermogenes and Phagilus were actual uh, people that lived in Rome during this time. And when Paul comes and he's arrested, that they actually packed up their stuff and they left Rome just to get away from him. And so think about, like, Paul is faithful. Paul knows, God, you're going to take care of me, but he's still going through a really difficult time. He's still going through a really rough time. And in the midst of all of those things, then steps in our hero. Then steps in this man that, I mean, when you talk about what does it mean to show true agape love to somebody, show that charity to somebody, 
then steps in Onesiphorus. And Paul goes out of his way to compliment and speak highly of Onesiphorus. And go back into verse 16 here. But may the Lord show special kindness to Onesiphorus and all his family because he often visited and encouraged me. Like you're meant to be an example. You're meant to be an example of God's love. Like what does that look like in a practical way? Simply put, it's meant to be an Onesiphorus. Look at the different things that Onesiphorus did for Paul, because I think that they serve for us on like, how do we show this practical love? Look at the first thing that I see that he did here, if you can put it up on the screen for me. He says, may of special kindness be on Onesiphorus and all his family. Why? Because he often visited me and he encouraged me. The NIV says that he often refreshed me. The way I think about it for you and me, we're meant to set an example in the charity we have for other people. What does that look like? I like that Onesiphorus, Onesiphorus made time for Paul, and he always left Paul better. Or you can think of it this way, that he was present when he was with Paul, and he focused on blessing him. You know, think about what it means. Scripture right here uses the word encourage, that, that Onesiphorus encouraged Paul. What does the word encourage mean? Encourage doesn't just mean compliment. Like I said this first service where it's like, Isaac, I love what you do with your hair. Like that is a compliment. That's not necessarily an encouragement. Oh, hey girl, I like those earrings, love. You look really pretty today. That is a compliment. It is secondarily encouraging, but truly to fills, to encourage somebody, that, that word right there, E-N, whenever it's a prefix, it means to fill with. It means to give to somebody. You are giving somebody courage. You are taking from your own courage and you are pouring into the other person. Have you ever had a day where you've had just a terrible, the worst day ever, but then you get around somebody and they start encouraging you, truly encouraging you. Dude, you can do this. You've got this. Remember what scripture says. Hey, keep your chin up. And you leave from them and you're like, okay, I'm bandaged up. I'm ready to go. That is encouraging. Paul right here goes, hey, in the midst of Rome being destroyed, everybody's angry. Nero's blaming the Christians. They just crucified Peter upside down, and I know I'm next, and I'm down in the prisons. And later on, he's just like, and it's just even cold down here. Timothy, when you come, can you bring me my jacket, please? But I'm so thankful for Onesiphorus because he often visited me, and every time he visited me, his goal was to encourage me to fill me with courage so I can run my race and I can be faithful in it. You know, for you and me, we're supposed to set the example in the charity we have for other people. That means being a blessing to them. The word blessing, it means religious joy and it means empowering to succeed. That you empower others to succeed and you leave them better than they found you. And I think it's important to note this. A blessing is only a blessing if it actually blesses somebody. Think about it. A blessing is only a blessing if it actually blesses somebody. I remember my 30th birthday. Carrie, do you remember where we went for my 30th birthday? Chuck E. Cheese is the answer to that. We went to Chuck E. Cheese because all my kids, because as a dad, like, you know, it's, it's no problem. Uh, we went to Chuck E. Cheese because the kids are just going to have a good night. And I didn't really think it could get worse than CeCe's Pizza, which we call Feces Pizza, but it gets worse than that. Chuck E. Cheese is brutal. We get back in the car afterwards. We're there for a few hours. We eat some pizza. We have some salad. The kids go play, and then they get all their tokens. We get in the car, and I never forget it. Josh comes up to me and goes, Dad, how was your birthday? He goes, he tells me, you just had the best birthday ever. And I'm like, thank you, Josh. And I'm like, in my mind, I did not have the best birthday ever. Now I'm happy to go. Like, it's great to be with the kids and all those things. But I'm like, that's not a Jeff Baden favorite birthday. 
it was encouraging to them. Be careful, because there's a lot of times we look to bless other people, but really we just go to Chuck E. Cheese for ourselves, and they're just sitting there going, oh, okay. Be a blessing to other people. Like the flip side is I remember uh, a man named Stephen Cutchins. He was our trumpet player. He was my trumpet teacher. But he then went into ministry. He's now a pastor down in North Augusta. And I remember when Carrie and I were first married, and we had like two nickels to our name, stuff. he and his wife, they would just do this. They were just always an encouragement. He and his wife, Wendy, invited us to come over for dinner. And I remember we went over for dinner, and we were like, we were treated like kings and queens. The, like, they gave us steak. Like, it wasn't just like go over and like, oh, we made a Stouffer's lasagna or whatever, which is no problem with Stouffer's lasagna, but like, they went out of their way. They made a steak. We had a three-course meal. They brought out appetizers. There was like a nice salad. There was steak, and then they had like a homemade dessert afterwards. And it, it, it made such an impression that 15 years later, here we are, and I'm mentioning it to you. You know, and the whole reason they did it was because at the end, Pastor Stephen, I just call him Mr. Cutchins because he's still my trumpet teacher, and, and Wendy, they just said, hey, they just wanted us to have, have us over because they knew we were young in ministry, and they just wanted to let us know that they believed in us, and they just wanted to encourage us. And I was like, I remember I, I left, I was fired up, like, man, it was just great. And now when we have people over for dinner, like, we, depending on whether or not you like our cooking, but we try to make sure it's like, it's like that in the same way. You know, I also love that he was present. Like, he made time for them, but when he made time, the focus was on Paul. Let me encourage Paul. Yeah, I remember that my Campus Crusade adult leader was a guy named Chad Young uh, when we were over in college. I remember the first time I met Chad, um, who was also a great guy. It's the start of the school year, so Campus Crusade's really hot and heavy, and his phone was buzzing like crazy. But we were meeting at a Wendy's, and I was just new to school, and he wanted to get to know me, and his phone was buzzing like crazy. And he didn't, like, make this big show of it. Like, his phone's buzzing, and what ended up happening was he just silenced his phone, and he put it away. He didn't make a big show of it to go, Jeff, I'm trying to focus on you, so watch as I am so humbly putting this away. Because, But he just, he just silenced it and just put it away, and then just he made eye contact with me. He was present, and it always stuck with me that, like, that's what it means to give undivided attention. His goal was to truly learn about me. What are you going through? What are you going, how can we encourage? How can we build you up? Onesiphorus did that with Paul, and we'll get to it at the end, but Paul says two separate times, man, I pray there is a special kindness upon this man's life because what he did in the midst of all of it. For you, make time for others and leave them better. That is a practical example of what charity means. Second thing you see Paul does, or, or Onesiphorus does in these verses right there, it says, he was never ashamed of me because I was in chains. I also think this is important. In your dealings and relationships with other people, he, Onesiphorus, was never ashamed of him, Paul, or his hardships. Make sure when it comes to other people, you know, you want to be charity. You want to show that agape love to other people. You need to recognize people are going to be extremely messy. And there will be a natural reaction sometimes. Like, as you get to know people, there's going to be times where they'll sit across from you and they'll start telling you stuff, and you're like, oh, my gracious. Like, you're super messy. If you feel a sense of shame rising up within you towards them, make sure you give that over to the Lord to say, God, let me be your unconditional love. Because Jesus knows all of our mess, and he still died for us, even while we were yet sinners. Here's how I want you to think of shame. It's shame I, shame I always equate to distance. That like, hey, I'm talking with Carrie, and I find out, whoa, Carrie, you're going through quite a mess here. If there is an inclination within me to go, you know what, let me kind of distance myself a little bit from her. Because I don't know if I want to be associated with her and all of that. Like, 
That is shame. Don't do that. Press back into it. You know, I remember one of the greatest regrets of my life, as silly as it sounds, was when I was back in eighth grade, I was consumed with being popular in middle school. I thought, like, that would be the greatest thing. And it sounds so dumb because it's dumb. Um, but when you're an eighth grader, like, it was a big deal. And my best friend was a man named Jason Wells. And Jason just was odd in things. But, like, every day I'd go to Jason's house, and we'd play computer games, and he was so sweet. But when I got to school, I would always distance myself from Jason because, like, Jason was not one of the cool kids. And if I was associated with Jason, it was going to ultimately hurt me and whatever else in my social stand. And so one day, uh, he was going through a rough thing, and his mom, it, like, really put me on blast, but in a good way, his mom was like, Jason, well, why don't, why don't you hang out with Jeff when he's at school? And he goes, Jeff doesn't try to hang out with me. He tries to be with all the cool kids. And it was like, and then his mom looked at me like, and I was like, yeah, that's on me. I don't talk to any of those other middle schoolers. You know, Jason and I don't talk often, but he's the only one I have a relationship with. But my shame of him put a wedge between us, and that's on me. You know, that happens to us often, to where we worry about our position or we worry about our status or we worry about whatever, our reputation. And Jesus never did that to us. So we shouldn't do it to other people. Yeah, I remember when I was at when I was pastoring once at a church, there was this sweet lady named Charlene Kuma, who was just this big black lady, and she was had some crazy tattoos and different things, and specifically she had gold teeth, and she must have spent a fortune on these teeth. And she was gave her life to the Lord, and and sweet lady. She had a, a boy and just getting her life right. And she wanted to start volunteering at the church. And so like she had that gregarious personality. So we ended up putting her out, out greeting like, hey, greet people at the door because you'll love on them. And I was approached one time to go, hey, do you think it's a wise idea that as people are walking up to the church that the first person they see is Charlene? And they didn't even say her name. They just said the lady with the gold teeth. And in fairness, it was Charlene on one door, and if you guys remember Cecil Patterson, it was Cecil Patterson on a different door who was this guy that wore overalls and things like that. But, but I did. Like, they weren't asking out of maliciousness. They were just asking because they were struggling with it. And I just pushed back to them to go, hey, if we're a church that welcomes and accepts all, like, that should be represented at the door. You know, because it's me, and then it was Charlene, and then Cecil. And, but, like, that's the, that's the point. That's all Onesiphorus here. He wasn't ashamed of his chains, even though he knew, like, can you imagine walking around? Like, the only way I can kind of equate it is, imagine if you went to Afghanistan right now, as there's the persecution of the underground church, and there's those videos and, of things of people going door to door shooting people that are professed to be Christians. And on, imagine going to Afghanistan right now and searching out to go, hey, can I find some Christians I want to associate with? Like, that would be what Onesiphorus is doing here. Encourages Paul, sets an example for us. But he wasn't ashamed of him or what he was going through, but he stood by him in the midst of it all. Third thing you can see from these verses here, and this one really challenges me. It says, but, verse 17, but when he came to Rome, he searched everywhere until he found me. And may the Lord show him a special kindness on the day of Christ's return. And you know very well how helpful he was in Ephesus. Third thing that I see that Onesiphorus did here for Paul was that he worked hard for Paul, and then he was consistent. 
Starting just with the word consistent here, I think consistency is an aspect of, a char- of, our, of, of our character that can be extremely lacking in our today's time. Being somebody that is just faithful. You know, you have such confidence in Jesus. You have such faith in Jesus that Jesus is going to come through for you. Why do you have such confidence and faith in Jesus? It's because he is consistent. He is faithful. We know God will be with us. Jesus will be with us tomorrow because he was with us yesterday, and he's with us today, and he will be with us tomorrow. You are meant to be the example of Jesus to this world, and consistency is a big deal. Why I mention all this is, yes, there is a natural response you will have from the message today to go, you know what? We're going back to work tomorrow. I want to be Onesiphorus, if that's how you say his name. I want to be like that guy. I want to live for the Lord. I want to do these different things. And if you give credit to Satan for anything, he, we are not ignorant of his schemes and what his playbook is. You leave with that emotional response of, okay, you know what? I want to set an example. I'm, I'm, I'm with it. Set an example in my charity. He is going to test your resolve. He's going to make it hard for you. You want to live for the Lord? Cool. Onesiphorus goes, you know what? Living over in Ephesus. Now, Catholic tradition has it that Onesiphorus uh, was led to, to the Lord by Paul in Ephesus. Uh, and that's where he was. So he had lived, believed to be lived in Ephesus. When he hears about Paul in Rome, he travels to Rome. Because there's probably this thought of like, hey, Paul's in trouble. Hey, I appreciate Paul. Paul did a great thing in my life. I want to go help this man. He shows up to Rome. And what does Paul tell us about it? He searched everywhere for him. The NIV says he searched hard for me. Rome is in ruins because there is fire all over. There are people displaced all over. Everybody's angry. He would have reached Rome and immediately hit a wall. And if it was only an emotional response, he'd have been like, well, God, you saw my heart. I tried. I'm going to head back. No, he searched hard for Paul until he found him. He went everywhere for Paul until he found him. And in your relationships with others, faithfulness means that when difficulty comes, you just don't throw in the towel. You keep pressing in in your relationships with others. He worked hard for Paul, and he was consistent. Remember, otherwise, the, the importance of faithfulness uh, in your life. My literal favorite verse in Scripture is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It says, let love, love here in the Hebrew is actually the word mercy. So let mercy be a hallmark of your life. Let kindness and this favor be a hallmark of your life. And then be faithful with it. You can't just be loving one day and then not the next day and then loving the next day and then not the next day. That's when people have no confidence in you because they're like, hey, which Dwayne am I getting today? Which Jeff am I getting today? Love and faithfulness like Jesus yesterday, today, tomorrow. Never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart and then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man, a.k.a. you will be an example. But it requires both of those things. Onesiphorus did both of these things. And that's the example for you. And that's the example for me. So just in closing this morning, it's simple. How can you set an example and be like Onesiphorus? There's going to be a situation that comes to mind of in your work where you're like, you know what? It's not that I'm doing a bad job, but there's room for improvement. God, how can I improve and set an example of charity? You know, we'll talk about the spirit behind it all and our spirit and our heart towards people next week. That, that's an important one. Don't, don't miss that. But in the practical way that I'm living, Scott, when I'm dealing with people, how present am I? You know, when I'm with them, am I giving them my own am I, am I Is my goal to leave people better than I found them? 
even if they are undeserving of that love. Now, when I'm then with them, do, do I have certain people or groups or situations where I find I try to distance myself from them because I'm ashamed of them? But God, or am I willing to dive into the dirt with them and help pull them up and pull them out of it all like Onesiphorus was? God, am I consistent? I think a big thing is just consistency. Why he says to Timothy, he says, you know how he also helped me in Ephesus. That proves his consistency. Paul in Ephesus, that was a great, in Acts chapter 19, there was a great riot that happened in Ephesus. And Paul, when they were, the whole mob formed and stuff, and they were trying to lead them all to the amphitheater to have this great debate, and then ultimately Paul probably would have been killed. But the Bible says that some of the believers kept Paul from going for his own benefit. They were trying to protect him. It is believed that Onesiphorus would have been one of those believers. And so he's telling Timothy, Timothy, you already know this man, how he helped me way back then, and now he's helping me now. He is consistent with his character. Consistency just can't speak enough about how important it is. It is important in you raising your kids. It's important in your work. It's important in your marriages. It's important with the lady at McDonald's. It's important with everybody. Doing those things, walking and trusting them. So how can you be on a Cyprus this week? I'll conclude and close specifically with this. There is a fleshly response to, it's not a fleshly response, just a natural response, I guess, is a much better way of saying it. It's not fleshly. But there is an idea of going, okay, but if I'm out there pouring myself out for everybody else, then how do I get nourished? If I'm pouring myself out like a drink offering to everybody else, if I'm encouraging everybody else, how do I then get encouraged? And I love how specifically Paul prays for Onesiphorus. He says it two different times. Do you remember the phrasing that he said? He said, God, may there be a special kindness on Onesiphorus and his family. And then at the end, he says, also, may there be a special kindness on Onesiphorus. This phrasing here of special kindness, it means mercy. He's praying to the Lord, God, may there be a great mercy on Onesiphorus' life. Do you know how mercy translates? Mercy translates into the word kindness, and it means favor. And so the idea being is like, hey, how, how do you receive, how do you get favor on your life? Like a great favor on your life. Are you following Onesiphorus' example? You know, how, do, how do I have favor on my family? Are you following Onesiphorus' example? Solomon in Proverbs writes the same thing. You can put it on the screen for me. In Proverbs chapter 11, I believe it is. Yeah, 11.25. says that the generous will prosper. And those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Other versions say uh, that those who water others will themselves be watered. You see that with Paul. Paul poured himself as a drink offering out in the city of Ephesus. And then all of a sudden when he's in need later, people from the city of Ephesus, Onesiphorus from Ephesus comes and refreshes him. You are meant to be an example. You have the opportunity to show people agape love. You know, like we spoke about last week, like a, we, we struggle in today's time sometimes with understanding what love is and how to equate love. Like, I love my wife, I love the Minnesota Vikings, and I love tacos. I say the word love for all of them, but I don't mean love evenly on all of those things. Love gets thrown around so many times. And I find it interesting, too, a lot of times we have a difficult time equating love, like how God, and this is important, like how God is... Um, like, God loves us like a father loves his kids. You know, and you, people have trouble with that because it's like, well, my father was not a good dad, and so I've never experienced that earthly type of love, so how can I equate that here? Like, here's what I'm saying on that. 
when you become the example of love to others, you become God's love to them. You get the opportunity to set the example for them to go, hey, when they read scripture and they say, man, Jesus loved people, what's that like? Oh, that reminds me of when I was with Dwayne. Dwayne loved me like Jesus loved me. And you get to restore and help build the relationship with the Lord. Like last week where we talked about the power of our words, that they are a tree of life to people. And you think, what is heaven like? That's where the tree of life is. What is heaven like? Oh, heaven is like when I am around this person. Because the words that come out of them are just life. You know, what's it like to experience the love of God? Oh, it is like being next to Carrie or being next to Isaac or being next to Kayla or being next to Kathleen or whomever it is that's here. That's the opportunity you get to have. But how you do it is by following the example of all the disciples. And the blessing is that when you commit to it and you walk it out and you are consistent in it, there is a special kindness on your life. There is a great favor on your life. You'll see it. You will win a good name in the sight of man. People will look to you and go, man, there's something about that. I want to be around that person. But you also win a good name in the sight of God. He will look at you and go, oh, okay, I can trust you and how you're living your life. And so, yes, there is a, you're faithful in this small thing, so I'll give you more to be faithful in greater things. And there will be a favor upon you. But you got to be honest at first. Let me close this in some prayer. Lord, we just thank you for the example of Onesiphorus here in Scripture. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that it would seal, it would resonate something deep within our heart. Lord, all of our situations are different, all of our situations are unique, but your word applies into every situation. Your word applies into every circumstance. And I pray that the example of Onesiphorus, Holy Spirit, would you bring the words behind the words and would you teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness, how you would have us live out being an example for you. God, so we could be thoroughly equipped, but we could also be a light, a light for you in all things. People would see our good deeds and they would praise your name in heaven. Help us to be in a practical, charitable way, generous people so we can be your light. And we thank you also, filled with a hope to know that when we are generous, God, those that water are also themselves watered. We thank you, God, that Paul finished his journey. He fought the good fight, he ran the race, and he was faithful. And now he is in this great cloud of witnesses cheering us on to do it. And we thank you for the example of Onesiphorus, that God, when he was in his dark and despairing times, everybody else deserted him, Father. But Onesiphorus came. Let us be like that in our works, in our family, God, in our neighborhood. Whatever area applies to us, Lord. Show us where we are doing a good job, God. Let us, let us fortify, let us seal it, let us be consistent in that. God, also show us areas where we can improve. Because we always want to be more and more like you. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for your grace, God, upon our lives. The undeserved, unmerited favor of God. We walk in that. Lord, where we have made mistakes in the past, we do, as, as Dwayne said earlier, we draw a line in the sand and we just repent from those things. We commit to trust and follow you. And we thank you that it's in that repentance that now becomes the testimony where people go and they go, wow, you used to be really bad at that, but all of a sudden you responded to the word of God and now you got, are walking in a great uh, a fullness of it. Lord, let our lives be a testimony to you and let us be a pattern and a model for those that are around. We love you with all of our heart, Jesus. We pray this in your son's name.
Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us this Sunday. For directions and service times, please visit our website, hamiltonlifechurch.com.